Thanks for downloading the Center for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. In this episode, as part of the healthcare systems, regional and comparative perspectives in Britain and Ireland, 1850-1960 conference, a paper by Dr. Peter Martin of Queen's University, Belfast. His paper was entitled, Why Have a Catholic Hospital at All? The Mater Informorum and the NHS. The Mater Informorum Hospital sits in the middle of North Belfast on the Crumlin Road. The area is mixed with a large Protestant population, but this is indisputably a Catholic hospital. Despite historically being the main general hospital for the area, serving both communities, it existed outside the National Health Service from 1948 to 1973 due to a dispute with the government. So its history offers insights into Catholic identity in Northern Ireland, into the relationship between healthcare and the political divide, and into the impact of devolution on the application of healthcare in the United Kingdom. So the matter was established as a voluntary hospital in a pretty familiar manner. Uh, the Sisters of Mercy founded it with the assistance of the Bishop of, Bishop of Down and Connor, Dr. Dorian. It was formally opened in um, 1883 with a mandate to provide for all the people of the area without regard to creed or class. So in that sense, it's a fairly typical voluntary hospital of the period. However, there are distinctive aspects to the story that shed light on what a Catholic hospital meant in late 19th century Belfast. The, if you like, foundation myth of the hospital um, is somewhat unusual. Instead of being a response by its founders to some personal revelation, charity, or uh, the plight of an ignored community, um, the story related by Marie Duddy in her history of the Sisters of Mercy is that it was founded after sisters visiting Catholic patients at Frederick Street Hospital received a, an extremely frosty response from the matron who accused them of proselytising the Protestant patients. And so the matter in this account was not so much intended to cater for Catholic patients as Catholic pastors and to provide pastoral care in a Catholic setting. And so it places it to some extent among the Catholic endeavours uh, described by Senia Pacetta, among others, the setting up of schools and universities, the um, building of churches and cathedrals, and the increased self-awareness and organisation of Catholic professionals, the formation of, of a distinctive Catholic identity parallel to the establishment. And Belfast in this period was a Protestant city into which a growing Catholic population was migrating in search of work. They were effectively excluded from civic government, and so like many migrant populations around the world, they were concerned simultaneously with demonstrating distinctiveness and with demanding equality. So this original matter, as you can see, uh, was a very small hospital. Essentially, it was a large house provided by the bishop and an adjoining terrace uh, bought by the order. And its prospectus emphasised egalitarianism over Catholicism. It was dedicated, quote, to the relief of the sick without distinction or creed, their emphasis. Uh, all clergymen were to have free access to their flocks, and perhaps in a rebuke to Freemasonry, quote, the password to all wards is sickness. Now, these early buildings, as I said, been bought with diocesan funds, but the construction of the hospital that they really wanted would cost more than £30,000, and this led the superioress uh, from 1893 on to appeal to a range of companies going far beyond traditional Catholic networks but also bringing the hospital and its founders into conflict with, uh, the Royal with the Royal Victoria Hospital in the south of the city 
which was likewise trying to expand at this time. And despite the positive image presented by the matter as an egalitarian institution, it was extremely difficult to balance the twin objectives of being open to all persuasions while remaining a Catholic institution. There were no actual problems reported with the treatment of Protestants. Um, the Unionist establishment, however, had a certain ambivalence about the hospital. On the one hand, uh, the Lord Mayor of Belfast, Lord Pirrie, subscribed to the hospital's building program, if you like, conferring a certain institutional respectability on it. But on the other, controversially, the three main railway companies in the region, the Belfast and County Down Railway, the Belfast and Northern Railway, and the Great Northern Railway, refused to subscribe, even though they had subscribed a combined £4,000 to the Victoria. And this matter was controversial even with their Protestant shareholders, but particularly Catholic shareholders, and was raised at half-yearly meetings. And in the case of the Northern Counties Railroad, the opposition in fact had stemmed from one shareholder who had threatened to veto the entire grant to both hospitals if the matter was included. And interestingly, the epithet sectarian was used in these discussions to describe the matter, uh, and very vigorously opposed by Catholic commentators. But the discussions themselves were quite civilised. And the term seems to have meant somewhat different things to the two sides. Protestant opponents meant sectarian in the sense that they saw the Catholic as in, the matter as intended for only one particular denomination, in that it would be staffed and managed exclusively by Catholics. On the other side, uh, Father Dempsey of Carrickfergus at the... Um, Great Northern shareholders meeting argued, quote, sectarian as a word of sense did not apply to Catholic institutions. Clearly, Catholic institution was simply incapable of being sectarian by its very nature. And the Catholic supporters of the matters were extremely careful to support the royal as well, rather than pitting the two against each other. Now, it's not so much the financial intricacies here that matter, as the fact that they revealed how problematic even contemporaries found the idea of defining what a Catholic hospital actually was. It was open to all patients, but it was a Catholic institution. Was it then to be included in the civic society of Belfast, or was it, like schools and churches, part of the shadow society which Catholics had built, their own shadow establishment effectively, in parallel to the British state and the Unionist local authorities. On the Catholic side, the matter was seen as a reasonable counter to the de facto Protestantism of the official hospital system. And most importantly, it, consoli it consolidated the Catholic narrative that the matter had been built, and almost exclusively so, with the support of their own community and was firmly theirs. And despite its problematic position, the matter was accepted by large parts of the establishment. Most importantly, the new hospital, built in 1900, was uh, a teaching hospital accepted by Queen's University Belfast, demonstrating respectability within the medical profession. Um, and those problems of identity were made even clearer after the establishment of uh, the state of Northern Ireland in 1921. For the new regional government, Catholicism was synonymous with disloyalty, and little effort was made to separate constitutional and revolutionary methods. This attitude was especially prevalent in the Ministry for Home Affairs, which was responsible for health policy. 
And the, these views are evident in a dispute in 1925 over the matter's attempt to acquire land from an adjoining prison. The hospital's application noted its care of soldiers during the First World War, its long record of civic service, and its interdenominational reputation. And it promised the land would allow for new facilities to be built, the building providing work for local workers in, as I say, a largely Protestant North Belfast area. And the Prime Minister, James Craig, was largely in favour of this proposal. By contrast, his Minister for Home Affairs, Richard Dawson Bates, was extremely hostile, as were the prison authorities. The governor of the prison, A.W. Long, warned, quote, it must be remembered that soon we will have significant Sinn Féin prisoners who are doing long sentences. The sympathies of the nurses and students will be with these prisoners, end quote. And Antrim County Council also refused to authorise the granting of the land. But despite this setback, the matter did expand significantly in the years after partition, uh, along, again, similar lines to what we see with other voluntary hospitals in, in Ireland and Britain. Um, a radiographic department set up in 1929, extended in 1936 and 1941. Uh, the existing buildings were redeveloped. Our Lady's Hospital in Beechmount was bought uh, in 1935 to care for elderly and chronic, and chronic cases. And in 1941, the hospital was taking in about 52,000 uh, patients a year, of whom only about 3,000 were inpatients. And this is significant because the inpatients were largely Catholic, but the outpatients were largely Protestant. <coughs> so there is a definite divide in the way in which Protestants and Catholics access medical care in the, in the matter. Um, Protestants didn't so much go in the door as they, <coughs> they could avoid it. The About 35,000 of these were outpatients and 15,000 were accident cases. And then a maternity unit was added in 1945. This was particularly significant, obviously, because of the nature of Catholic ethos. And opening the unit, Bishop McGeehan um, commented, quote, Catholics are bound by Roman Catholic teaching, and they should have facilities to follow it. And he expressly ruled out the provision of contraception, birth control, abortion, or craniotomy at the new facility. That's quite unusual in speeches about the matter. Very few speeches have that sort of prohibitive character, talking about what the hospital will not do. They tend to actually be very positive and emphasise all the things it does. So, in many ways, the situation of the matter in the post-war environment is quite typical. Uh, it faced the same problem of funding, provision, and expanding services and demand, which other voluntary hospitals did and which are, are well described. It was in need of better planning and investment, as was the whole Belfast Hospital Service, which was increasingly um, unwieldy. And despite ideological qualms, the Northern Ireland government had resolved to implement the NHS in full, essentially because they simply politically couldn't afford not to and financially couldn't afford to do it in any different way. In Britain, hospitals such as the matter would have had a choice between full integration into the service or being disclaimed by the minister and remaining independent, but able to perform contractual duties with the local NHS bodies. The Northern Irish minister, William Grant, implemented a subtly but significantly different system. Any hospital which refused to join the NHS would not be considered a hospital at all for the purposes of the Act, and could not benefit from any contracts for NHS activity. And this policy was at the heart of the controversy that then dominated the matter's history. 
This fate caused a challenge to the matter's identity because there was little confidence in the Catholic community that the hospital could retain its character or independence in the hands of the Protestant state. Grant didn't offer them much hope, although he um, officially claimed that their ethos would be protected. He also told a meeting of women unionists and was reported in the press, if I had introduced the word religion into my bill, the nationalists would, accuse me, would have accused me for doing so. Now they've accused me for ignoring their interests. And in 1948, Bishop McGean uh, commissioned a report on the matter's situation to see exactly what their options were. Uh, the results made very uncomfortable reading. The hospital was running a substantial shortfall. Income was £42,000 per annum. Expenditure, £53,000 per annum. In the past, it had raised substantial sums from the workers of North Belfast via uh, voluntary deductions to salary by their employers. The existence of the NHS threatened to undermine these communities' support for voluntary hospitals. The same problem was expected to be true of bequests and gifts. The staff who were consulted for the report and whose uh, own, the notes on their responses are kept with the, in the archives alongside the, the printed, the typed copy of the report, and they're considerably stronger. Um, were extremely critical of the hospital's management for allowing the situation to deteriorate this far. After all, people had known since the early 40s that some kind of NHS was coming, and yet no provision seemed to have been made by the hospital. And several were adamant that the hospital would just have to join the NHS. One commented, quote, the quote, only way the matter can continue to exist was to join the service. Another asked, quote, why have a Catholic hospital at all? It is necessary if questions of morality enters or required because of bigotry shown by non-Catholics. Hence, it is necessary to have one, but it must be a first-class one. The matter is heading for status as second-class. The same writer did question reasonably enough why, quote, Catholics stand to gain more from the health act than others, yet Catholic opinion, clerical, political, is hostile. The hospital was also old-fashioned in a number of ways. Visiting hours were unusually limited, Doctors met patients' relatives in the linen room because there was no designated meeting area. Nurses complained of poor facilities and conditions. The management structure of the hospital was ramshackle. The superioress was effectively in charge, uh, and the whole system depended really on her and a few other officers being competent, which they at that time were, but there was no strict corporate governance in place. Medical staff claimed they were rarely consulted and were losing out professionally because of low pay and poor facilities. Some wondered why there was no effective planning for the welfare state and how seriously the authorities had negotiated with Stormont. So it certainly seems the matter was in need of reform and investment in any event. And purely on medical and financial grounds, there were few arguments against joining the NHS. But of course the issues were not purely medical or financial. The real problems were ethos and control. Now, in this case, I don't want to confuse ethos with ethics. They're substantially different things. There was very little detailed discussion of what procedures might occur in an NHS hospital or might be forbidden. Uh, I think they were taken for granted. They never knew what we were talking about. But the issue was more of the hospital having a clear Catholic identity, that it'd be a teaching hospital for Catholic students, that there was a clear role for nuns and priests in running it, that there be a Catholic feel to the hospital, from the statuary to the chapel, for example. This is the matter from Orham Chapel, um, which uh, 
on which the high altar portrayed the Blessed Virgin bending over the body of Christ. It's as explicitly Catholic a placing as you can have. Um, the writer Camillus in the Irish News argued that though it was open to all, the matter was, quote, quite definitely an ecclesiastical institution. Now, officially, the government pledged to respect all this, but there was an understandable suspicion of such promises. State schooling in Northern Ireland had, um, was effectively Protestant due to a campaign of attrition run by various pressure groups over the 1930s. And the Catholic Church was in dispute with the state over the secondary education system. So ethos meant more than just dogma. It also implied power. The property of the matter was owned by the diocese and under canon law could not be simply transferred to the state willy-nilly. The board of management of the hospital was headed by the bishop and dominated by priests and nuns from the Sisters of Mercy. There was no appetite to transfer this to a hospital's authority answerable to a hegemonic unionist government. And the government was guilty of serious political misjudgment here. The Minister for Health, William Grant, was a passionate supporter of the health service, uh, very much coming from a labour unionist tradition. But he was representative of a brand of populist loyalism which had little understanding of or sympathy for Catholics' fear or their pride. He believed the hospital would capitulate. He told the Cabinet, quote, we need the hospital, and the hospital needs the money and the status we can give it. I would not recommend any half measures. Either the hospital comes in and enjoys the full benefits, or it stays out and enjoys none. So therefore, as I said, the matter faced a funding crisis uh, with large deficits. And at this time, its funds came from conventional sources for voluntary institution. The largest contributor was the Workers' Maintenance Committee. This organised the collection of deductions from workers' wages. And the evidence of the reports supports the contemporary view that this was an ecumenical undertaking, with many large Protestant firms contributing substantially. But also, as such, it was a very, one that was very vulnerable to donor fatigue. There was a near collapse in workers' contributions after 1949, uh, explained, I think, by two factors. Firstly, with the rest of the health service becoming free, uh, it was no longer appealing to make extra deductions to benefit one hospital. And secondly, the dispute over the matter politicised its role and alienated many Protestants. And more explicitly, Catholic for forms of fundraising um, occurred, such as the Hospital Saturday collection throughout Northern Ireland and Church Gate collections. These also declined substantially after 1948, suggesting that Catholics now benefiting from the National Health Service were also less willing to contribute extra for their own services. And so a group emerged which was become crucial to the matter's survival, the young philanthropists. They were initially formed to organise fundraising events such as dances and collections. But after the hospital elected to opt out of the NHS, more radical measures were required. They began to run football pools in December 1948. Members of the public paid a shilling a week for membership of the pools, which were based on the results of English, Scottish and Welsh uh, top-level football games. And the organisation was closely linked to the Diocese of Down and Connor through Father P.J. Mullally, the secretary to the bishop, who acted effectively as liaison. And despite that, the organisation was careful to remain at arm's length from the hospital or the bishop. Uh, there are no files of the Niles and Archives relating to it. There are no, no, there are, they are simply treated as an outside donor in the hospital's annual report, although they existed for no other purpose. Its records, wherever they are, are not anywhere linked to the hospital. I presume somewhere someone has an attic full of account books, but I, I'd love to get my hands on them, but I've never, ever come across them 
and nobody associated with the matter can quite remember exactly who was involved. The government at first threatened to shut the pools down, but settled for taxing their proceeds at 30%. The pools were of dubious legality in Southern Ireland as well, and the sellers were prosecuted in 1953 for running an illegal lottery. The prosecutions were dismissed by Mr Justice O'Sullivan on the not exactly strict legal grounds that the pools were necessary for the matter's survival. Therefore, we must overlook them. Now, Bishop McGean had sought direct help from the government of the Republic, asking them for funds from the Irish Hospital sweepstake. Now, this wasn't legally possible, and as Murray Coleman discusses, there was also opposition to the matter's claims from sources within the church and state in the South. A, quote, high ecclesiastical authority complained that the YP pools damaged local charities and that the Department of, and a Department of Justice official commented, quote, charity begins at home and the Matter Hospital has scandalously abused the toleration extended to it. The pools themselves were legalised in the Republic through the setting up of a Dublin-based company to administer them. By the late 1950s, the hospitals were all but dependent on the pools. The, um, not simply because of the decline of its other sources of income, but due to increasing costs. Uh, the, as you see here... Uh, between 1958 and 1963, expenditure rose 59%. Um, up to 1958, the 1958 accounts showed that the YP Endowment Fund, uh, here we go, yeah, the, y, the YP Endowment Fund provided £66,000, or 59% of the hospital's income. By 1963, it was £118,000, or 69%. Uh, despite this, the hospital was still in the red to the tune of... Um, Sorry, more than £10,000. Just to compare a few figures from these years. Uh, yeah, I'm okay for time. As we see, firstly, the problem, as I say, not so much of income, which was expanding nicely, but just costs constantly rising. Uh, no surprise to anyone familiar with costs of hospital care in the 1950s and 60s UK. Um, where was that coming from? Uh, very straightforwardly, wages and salaries occupied a growing percentage in both uh, gross and, real, and uh, proportionate terms of the matter's expenses. Um, other areas, if anything, declined in significance. But quite simply, paying staff was costing increasingly more and more. And this was also, we have to remember, a hospital effectively competing with NHS hospitals. It was trying to offer comparable services, not always succeeding, but trying to at least stay in the game. The income, as we see, subscriptions, almost non-existent, donations hanging in there, workers' collections stagnant, hospital Saturday collections significant, but nowhere near enough. So without the YP fund you would have seen a hospital that would have been effectively bankrupt. It would have made about 40% of what it needed. The, um, the side effect of this was that the hospital was now in an unexpectedly strong position. 
The government had always assumed the hospital would come crawling into the NHS effectively bankrupt. Instead, it was capable of surviving, if not exactly thriving. At the same time, attitudes on the government side had fought a little. Uh, Grant's successor, Deirdre Parker, uh, could play the sectarian political game as well as any of her male colleagues, but she was an able minister. And in 1941, she presented the dilemma to her cabinet colleagues as follows. Quote, were it not for the services which the matter is providing in North Belfast, the hospital authority would certainly have to provide a hospital of their own in that area. The matter's extern department, treating over 50,000 patients a year, and the majority of those patients, um, and while the majority of the inpatients were Catholic, approximately 85% of the extern cases were Protestant. So essentially the matter was two hospitals, a Catholic establishment for internal patients and a mixed or Protestant hospital for external patients. And there was an obvious anomaly in asking these taxpayers to pay their dues to the NHS when their local hospital got no money from it. More subtly, the matter was circumventing the zero-sum game of Northern Irish politics. It couldn't simply be written off as a service for Catholics and therefore excluded from the government's concerns. It uh, was offering something for Protestant supporters of the government. Unions of voters used it. So how could the government be seen to support the diverse open matter that they used without funding the Catholic, um, sorry, uh, without funding the more explicitly Catholic intern services, teaching hospital and the Sisters of Mercy order who were being paid through it? Furthermore, the Tanner Committee, which reviewed Northern Ireland's National Health Service in the 1950s, had recommended that the matter be given similar terms to the disclaimed hospitals in Britain. Now, Parker warned the Cabinet that, quote, strong opposition would come from unionist backbenchers if this were considered. And one of the factors that held the government back from any decisive action was the determination that nothing should be done too close to a general election. And of course, in Northern Ireland, you're always too close to a general election to try to do anything. The pools also created a something of a dilemma for the matter. Its advocates still protested that it was not treated as well as disclaimed hospitals in Britain. But the fact is that disclaimed status would have brought it in maybe £12,000 a year, but would almost certainly have undermined support for the YP pools, because without discrimination, why support the alienated hospital? There was no prospect of earning £100,000 a year or more from NHS contracts. And so there was a subtle shift in the supporters' campaign for recognition. The Republic of Ireland may not have offered any money, but it exerted diplomatic pressure by the Commonwealth Relations Office, something which was dismissed outright by the Northern Ireland government. Meanwhile, a series of talks and pamphlets by Father Michael Kelly, the chaplain to the medical school at Queen's Belfast, articulated an argument for the, the matter based more on issues of practice and ethos than governance of property. He asserted essentially a corporatist interpretation of services that the running of hospitals was a historic right of the church and a Catholic hospital was essential in Northern Ireland. Even a government offer to guarantee its ethos was not enough. Quote, we would be slow to accept it unless some power selection or veto were vested in the bishop. Don't think a unionist cabinet would have got that one past the backbenchers. The hospital also ha had a requirement of, quote, the moral character of its nursing staff. And 
in regards to the Catholic teaching hospital, he identified two areas of concern. One was his fear that students would lose their faith in a conventional teaching hospital, and he cited examples from Britain where he claimed this was happening. The second, that students should not see immoral operations, but instead should be shown alternatives. So this is very different from the idea of a disclaimed hospital. Um, he was comparing really to the position of Catholic schools in Northern Ireland, which were run as independent voluntary institutions, but which got something like two-thirds of their capital costs from the state in a settlement that was profoundly unconstitutional and illegal, but prevent, was enough money to stop the Catholics from taking a court case. The, this was a radical change to any model previously put forward, and it was most likely a negotiating position. There was absolutely no prospect of any other government granting this sort of status. Um, it had considerable logic in the Northern Ireland context, where this sort of settlement did operate in regard to other uh, services like education. So perhaps the best summary of the government's policy uh, was offered by William Morgan, the next Minister for Health and Local Government in 1962. He told the Cabinet that the hospital had in fact been offered a contractual settlement but had rejected it. Quote, while it was unlikely that their views had changed, the possibility of acceptance could not be ruled out. The minister felt, therefore, it would be unwise for the government to open the question. <laughs> In other words, don't offer it, they might say yes. It took another decade for a settlement to be reached, which was, in fact, largely on the matter's terms. Uh, the desperation of the government to achieve some sort of Concord with some group of Catholics by 1972 was too strong for it to object any further. Now, the matter is an interesting case study of British health care as it applies to the region of Northern Ireland. Firstly, it illustrates the powerful, symbolic role that a voluntary hospital could play in an ethnic minority community. It was a mechanism for constructing the Catholic community's own identity. The matter offered a physical manifestation of the status of Catholicism in Belfast in bricks and mortar. Um, and I say in that category, I put it in a similar case to things like Armagh Cathedral, which sits atop the hill in Armagh, actually overlooking the, the older Protestant cathedral. The, um, it was a showcase for Catholic professionals and it was a model of the religious tolerance that Catholics believed uh, was their ethos and which was being denied them by Protestant Belfast. Now, these rules were not entirely compatible. They didn't have to be. But the hospital won acceptance in the local community. Many of the campaigners in its favour, for example, were Protestant members of the Northern Ireland Labour Party, not necessarily purely Catholic people. Um, and the medical and education establishments also support the hospital in practice. And this symbolic success concealed several shortcomings in administration and financing, which would have presented real challenges by 1948 with or without government interference. Even without the coming of the NHS, it is hard to see how the matter could have coped with increased demand for and costs of medical treatment, rising salaries, increased professionalization of nursing, um, given the um, situation in post-war Northern Ireland, and given the sectarian nature of Northern Ireland's political system, any state role, however limited, whatever the model, would have been extremely problematic. The matter also demonstrates some of the problems inherent in the British approach to devolution. 
The welfare state envisages a largely benevolent, neutral government making decisions in a rational, fair way with regard to local conditions. This assumes a degree of national unity, which Northern Ireland simply didn't possess. Instead, the Catholic minority had little trust in the state, which the system required. They were behaving entirely rationally in this regard. Northern Ireland Hospitals Authority and the various hospital management committees were in practice dominated by Protestant Unionists. The government's intransigence made the situation worse, but the problem was inherent in the assumptions that devolution could be carried out on the standard British state model in a highly divided society. And finally, to address the question, why have a Catholic hospital at all, it's important to recognise that the Catholicism at issue was not merely doctrinal. Scholars have long argued that religion in Northern Ireland is more an ethnic signifier than a set of beliefs. The hospital's Catholicism was in part about ethics and procedures, but it's interesting how little space these took up in the debates. Instead, ownership and identity dominated discussions. The desire to preserve our hospital from them, on the one hand, and to deny our money to their priests, on the other, was the real crux of the debate. <laughs>